Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. Good morning. Uh, I want to start off with, uh, with a question that I don't expect verbal answers to, but have you ever changed your mind about something? And not just something really simple, but have you changed your mind maybe about a long-held belief or a long-held understanding or conviction about something that eventually somebody's provocation, some question, new information, or an experience cause you to change your mind about it? I want to bring you back to the Kirsten family dinner table where uh, a bowl of tortilla chips and guacamole sat in front of me. Now, I don't like guacamole. I actually hated guacamole. Uh, I'm a pretty picky eater, and basically the way that I would, uh, my picky eating would manifest is I would just say I hated something whether or not I'd ever tried it. I would just double down on hating it. Any other picky eaters in the room? Okay, there's like three of us. Awesome. Clearly, the rest of you have been growing much more than I have. But I grew up really picky, and my parents learned pretty early to not push me. They, really, they pushed me once to eat baked beans, um, and so I shoveled in a spoonful of baked beans. I chased it with some mug root beer and then immediately reproduced it on the table. And they were like, all right, if Douglas wants a Pop-Tart for dinner, Douglas gets a Pop-Tart for dinner. But so here we sat, me and my older brother, he's three years older, and this guacamole is in front of us. And he was like, Douglas, you should, actually, he calls me Doug. He said, Doug, you got to try this guac. And I was like, nah pass. I I hate it. He's like, you've never tried it. And I was like, don't like it, don't want it. And so he kind of like starts, he's increasing the intensity of the exchange a little bit. He's like, you really, you you really need to try this. This guacamole is really good. And I was like, listen, I believe that for you. But for me, like here, here's, here's what I'm going to say, Matt. Um, I'm going to eat no guacamole and there's going to be more for you. Isn't that an exciting way to look at this? Less for me, none for me actually, because I hate it and more for you. He keeps doubling down on, I must eat the guac. I double down on, I hate it. Before we know it, our dad comes running around the corner. He's like, you, Doug, upstairs to your room. You, Matt, downstairs to your room. Now, this was weird because I was 26 years old. (laughs) And my older brother's 29. We don't have rooms in this house anymore. Nor have we been being sent to our rooms for six or nine years since we've lived outside of the home. This was also the first year that Leah and I were married, and she was sitting there at the table and probably thinking, what in the world did I marry into? People fighting about guacamole. Well, then fast forward to the year 2022. I am at a friend's house hanging out. We're playing some games. There's chips and guac in the middle of the table, and I just take a chip and I dip it. I don't make an announcement. I don't make a grand thing about it. My wife does notice out of the corner of her eye, and she gets really excited. Guys, guacamole's amazing. It's incredible. I've been missing out for so much of my life on guacamole. So that actually started a, uh, a, new, a new discipline of mine, which is to try something new every quarter. So every three months, I try something new. I'm trying to defeat the things that I hate. Um, but for all you mustard lovers, I think you're crazy. <laughs> M- mustard is terrible. And I tried really good mustard. Anyway, I, I say all of that to talk about an experience where I had this long-held conviction and belief and understanding of something that I, that I really, really vehemently believed and stood on, and then later an experience changed my mind. We're going to look at an exchange between Jesus and some leaders in the local religious system, 
And we're going to look at ways that Jesus might address uh, a, a very big, bold, spiritual changing of mind. Um, so we're going to talk about repentance throughout this passage today. Um, so if you could turn in your Bibles, uh, there are paper Bibles in the pews if you want to go digital on your phone. or um, I love having a physical Bible. Um, so M- Matthew chapter 21 is where we'll be today. And once I hear the sound of pages diminish, uh, I'll pray for our reading of Scripture and then we'll dive in. So Matthew 21, starting in verse 23 this morning. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this church and this space this morning, a space where we confess corporately, where we sing together, where we are permitted and encouraged to bring our doubts and our questions and our wonders and our hurts and even the hurts that we've done to others. This is a safe place to bring all of that and surrender it at your feet. And I pray that as we read these words from the scriptures, that there would be power in the reading and that there would be uh, conviction through this reading. There would be inspiration and reminders of your goodness and your grace and your love. Um, Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 21, verses 23 through 32. So Jesus enters the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question, and if you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it amongst themselves and said, well, if we say from heaven, then he will say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, then we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. Now we're going to look at this in two sections. First, we'll look at the initial exchange and Jesus' authority being questioned, and then we'll look at the parable. This initial exchange, this is a pretty special cultural thing that we witnessed. These were pretty common rabbinic debates. Um, And you just don't see these anymore. And and maybe I don't see them anymore because I haven't really been in a lot of Jewish contexts outside of playing Abram the bookseller in Fiddler on the Roof when I was in high school. Experienced a lot of rabbinic debates in that time. Um, And then I went swing dancing in Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh. It's a traditionally known Jewish neighborhood. Um, There were no rabbinic debates at the uh, swing dancing, though. Um, But this rabbinic debate, so this was when it was commonly known that these well-known teachers and skilled teachers would be challenged. The people people could come up to them and ask them questions. And people nearby would kind of gather around. They wanted to see and hear this exchange. And it was thoughtful and considerate and intellectual. Um, The goal wasn't to agree. The goal was just this sharpening, this ability to truly ask the questions that were on their hearts and minds and kind of poke holes in each other's beliefs but they come away respecting each other. Now, it sounds awesome. We don't have that today, but I mean, we have our presidential debates to scratch the itch, right? <laughs> Respectful and thoughtful and 
intellectual, maybe someday. Um, but the historical context is really important here. So I want to describe a little bit about the background leading up to this exchange of these chief priests and elders and Jesus. So this exists as part of a much larger and longer kind of slow-burning, increasingly intensifying tension between Jesus and the temple leadership. Just yesterday in this timeline, Jesus came in with what we know as his triumphal entry. Um, he was met with shouts of Son of David and Hosanna in the highest, and palms were being laid down. He's riding in on a colt, this very big public display of his entrance. And then he went into the temple, and he cleansed the temple. He flipped over tables. He drove out the money changers, people who had created this uh, kind of corrupt and polluted economy within the temple, and he referred to it as a den of robbers. So here the chief priests and the elders of the people find Jesus the next morning, and they're asking, by what authority are you doing these things? So it's both his teachings, his storytelling, but also this big act he did the day before. And all in all, that seems like a pretty legitimate question, right? This guy comes into the temple that you, like your role is to have authority and kind of observance over, and this guy comes in and changes a bunch of stuff in the foyer and starts speaking out against what you're doing. It seems like a pretty justifiable question to ask. Hey, who gave you the authority, and, and why are you doing these things? So I want to challenge us for a brief moment to not immediately villainize the chief priests and the elders. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Keep your pitchforks and your torches handy, because we will get there. But for now... I want to look at them and give them a shot. So beyond all these historical events and the things that just happened yesterday in this storyline, um, the chief priests themselves, they did have authority in Israel. This authority would have been given by God at the time of Moses and passed down through generations. So there was a general understanding that they would be in charge of the temple's liturgy, the temple buildings, and the finances. Now, the elders that are spoken of here, they could have been from one of two different backgrounds. They could have been just members of some really influential lay families within the local body. Um, but they also could have been non-priestly members of the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin is one of those governing bodies that you kind of hear referenced throughout the Gospels. Um, they would have been a supreme council, a tribunal um, grouping of Jews during the post-exilic time, so after exile. Um, they had a high priest that kind of led the charge for them, and they would have religious and civil and criminal jurisdictions. I know you'll remember all of that, but suffice it to say, they had some authority to question somebody else's authority in their temple. They have the right to question. All right, now grab your pitchforks and your torches. Their motive wasn't pure, though. I wish it was. I wanted to see a moment where they seemed to be genuinely inquisitive about Jesus and we could see them be transformed but their motive was not pure. As one commentary put it, they're not primarily interested in Jesus's true identity. They're not interested in discovering how God would have them respond to Jesus. Rather, they're concerned with maintaining their own privilege and their own power. They're concerned with keeping the current order intact and they will have Jesus in their nice, tidy little box or they won't have him at all. And after Jesus's question, the religious leaders are left speechless. So let's look at Jesus's question. So he responds to their question with a question, which might seem really sneaky and like really sly, but this was pretty common within those rabbinic debates. That was kind of part of the ways that they would provoke each other would be questions as answers to questions, just to keep kind of mining through what each of them believed about something. But his question is not so simply just a rebuke of something that they would have believed or not been able to believe, um, but it was more profound. Jesus's question, the true goal of it was to, in, to reveal and kind of peel back the layers of the hearts of his questioners. 
he already knows them to be unreceptive. And Jesus is even so sneaky with this question because the true answer to Jesus's question is actually the answer to their question. Let me put it another way, and this is kind of a crass example, but if somebody came to me and they said, hey, Douglas, do you want to go to Pizzeria Luca for lunch today? I would say, does a bear crap in the woods? Now, we don't need to talk about bears or their fecal matter in the woods. The answer to that question is yes, which is my way of saying the answer to go into Pizzeria Luca is yes. So Jesus's question is kind of similar in that way. He's not maybe as playful, definitely not as crass as a, a bear pooing in the woods. But what, he's, what they don't realize is the answer to how John came and what authority by which John came and where he received it is actually the answer to their question about Jesus. And now it's really interesting that Jesus would identify himself with John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. I, I think we might just immediately think, well, this is probably because John was the one who kind of made the way and kind of opened up the doors and set up this platform for Jesus as the Messiah. But even more than that, Jesus' identification with John begins to pull back the curtain on what type of authority figure Jesus would be. There had been this understanding and expectation that the Messiah, this king, this savior that was going to come, would come with a militant rule, with a governing type strength. But Jesus is identifying himself with John. John would have been a marginal character, ripped straight from the pages of Israel's prophetic history. He himself met a death because of him challenging authority. He challenged Herod. And such a choice to identify with John, it signals to his audience, both those onlooking and hearing this exchange, but even us today, that Jesus's authority is just as marginal. That he doesn't aspire to traditional forms of power, whether religious or political in nature. And now back to the motive of the priests and the elders. Once Jesus punts that question their way, asking them, what about John? Was it from heaven or from human origin? Their little like internal debate amongst each other again shows us their motives. They're debating amongst each other not what the correct answer to Jesus' question is, not even sharing what they themselves might believe or what they might themselves understand about John the Baptist. They are questioning, how will this response make us look? Or how will this response affect the perception of the people? Because they didn't want to upset the crowds who did hold John in high regard. So, Clearly, they weren't talking quiet enough because Matthew was able to record it here in the gospel for us. They come back with their response. They say, we don't know. And man, it, I, at this point, I would think they would have to feel, oh, this, whole, this is backfiring, guys. Like, we got to start backpedaling out of this because Jesus has caught us. And it feels kind of good to watch them trap themselves. Like, we don't even need to have our pitchforks and our torches handy because these guys are kind of doing it to themselves. Not only are they unable to trap Jesus— but Jesus' question now truly turns around the line of questioning, and he calls into question their competence to even challenge authority in the temple. It really must be a humiliating display for these leaders in the local church. And then Jesus keeps his word and says, neither, by, uh, or neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So to summarize this moment, if we thought at large because the heading in our English Bible says the authority of Jesus questioned. If we thought that this was primarily about Jesus's authority being questioned, we can see now that this is really more revealing the lack of receptivity and the unbelief of the chief priests and the elders. Now, I do wonder, my curiosity sometimes gets the best of me. We don't see any moments specifically recorded that any of these chief priests or elders 
later came to follow Jesus, but I always want to believe that there's a possibility that unwritten in Scripture are these moments where this may have been a seed planted, that they might have seen this revelation of Jesus' true power, the authority given to him by God to do these things and to kind of flip around the script on what they understood as their religious system and how they understood righteousness, and that maybe somebody's heart was beginning to beat a different way in this moment, and then later they would come to follow Jesus. We don't know, but I like to wonder. So now let's pick up in the parable, and I'll read this parable once more to refresh us. Jesus continues, and he says, What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing, and he replied, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Now, when I first read the passage that was on the, um, the liturgical calendar for this week from the lectionary, um, I thought this is kind of a lame parable. Like, it feels so straightforward. Jesus asked the question, which one did the will of his father? One of them did it, one of them didn't. It's a pretty easy and straightforward answer. But there's a lot more here as I dug into it. So let's look at the first son's response. Now, we have in our English translations that he says, I will not. And as is often the case, our English translations can sometimes miss out on a little bit of nuance to the original exchange. Sometimes they miss out on maybe a cultural reference that could land flat for us. Um, in our Tuesday night interpretive community session, uh, we talked about how maybe a better and more accurate translation of this response, instead of I will not, it actually might have sounded more like I don't want to, or I don't desire to do that. And it made me think of a time last week, uh, my wife Leah had plans with, uh, with some girlfriends, she was going out, and the next day we had a lunch thing we were going to, and we had signed up for, to bring a veggie tray. Uh, we don't just buy a veggie tray, we cut a veggie tray, and I am historically slow at anything in the kitchen. Uh, if a recipe says a half an hour, I have to block off at least two and a half, because just so, I'm really slow. I'm, I'm terrible at it. And she asks me, so she's going out for the night, and we only have one car, which means I'm stuck at home. She says, hey, uh, can you go ahead and get the veggies cut for tomorrow? And I was like, I, I, I don't want to do that. See, I had big plans. I was going to eat an entire frozen pizza, while watching a James Bond movie, or listening to a record, or playing uh, Wii Golf. I don't know. I had a lot of options that night. Cutting vegetables for an hour and a half was not one of them. But let's look at the second son's response. The second son responds, I will, sir. So this is the proper, respectable, dutiful answer. This is what would have been expected in that culture. A father figure was a very serious thing in this moment where for a father to ask a son to do something and a son to say no, or I won't, or I don't want to, would have been highly disrespectful. So the second son knows the script. He says, I will, sir. It could have even be translated as, I will, my Lord. He is like even revering him and honoring him with that title. But then the little jerk doesn't do anything. That's disappointing, right? You want to see this, this like pinnacle example, and he falls short too. But if we're all honest, we do both of these things with God. There are moments where we know that God is asking us to do something, a direction that he wants us to go, either to do something, or maybe there's something we're thinking of doing or wanting to do, and he does not want us to do it. And we might respond, I, I, don't, I don't want to. 
I don't want to do things your way. Or I don't want to not do this. This is actually going to be really fun. This is going to feel good. I'm going to enjoy this. The, the, the light at the end of the tunnel of this is going to be sweet. It's going to make me look awesome. So I don't want to not do this. Or sometimes we might respond like the second son, and we might say and pray and sing and, and Jesus fish sticker our car and do all these things that say, I will, sir, I will, my Lord, but then we walk in contradiction to that. We all do this from time to time. I'm not trying to make us feel bad. I'm not trying to heap shame on us. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have these moments where our response to God doesn't line up with our follow-through and our actions. So a summary of this moment, we have an initial refusal followed by eventual obedience and an initial agreement followed by eventual disobedience. So the question is posed, who does the will of the Father? It's still the first one. He said the wrong thing, but then he did the right thing. So what we have here is the chief priests knowing the correct answer right away, but then they didn't see how Jesus would come back to them. He says, the tax collectors and, oh, by the way, I cut the vegetables. I did, I still had time to eat the pizza and watch the movie, uh, but I cut all the vegetables. It only took me an hour, so a lot less than I was planning, way more than it should have. But um, I like to live by the mantra to underpromise and overdeliver. <laughs> We're coming up on 10 years of marriage, so I think it's been working. So Jesus says to them after they respond, the first one is the one who did the will of the Father. He seemingly doesn't even acknowledge their correct response. He just says, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. They must have thought they heard him wrong because these are the leaders of the local religious system. These are the ones who keep everybody accountable. They watch over the liturgical, the buildings, the finances. They have this authority that's been given to them, passed down from generations. Surely Jesus is not suggesting that these low-level sinners are in any way have a, a priority upon entering God's kingdom. We must have heard him wrong, but if they continued listening, they would have heard him again say, the tax collectors and the prostitutes recognize John's ministry. They recognize John's heavenly given authority, and you even watch their response, and yet you still did not follow suit. The word here, the, the phrase where it says that they're uh, entering the kingdom of God ahead of you, um, I initially read that as like chronological, that maybe because they had already responded in John's ministry a couple years prior, that they were just kind of in line ahead, or that there was somehow like a tiered system or a structure, an order to who gets to enter. A better understanding of this ahead of you is actually think of how somebody says, um, yeah, like that scientist went before us and kind of paved the way. It's kind of setting an example, somebody that is modeling faithfulness. That had to cut even deeper for these religious leaders. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, which Jesus is referencing those groups specifically, but often those titles would have been just an easy way to kind of lump in the worst of the worst. This, the, the low-level sinners, but um, they'll use the examples of tax collectors and prostitutes. They are paving the way. They're going before you and showing what it looks like to be faithful and to respond to opportunities, to follow Jesus, to know who God is, to receive grace, to repent and believe. And this is where we have another example of a judgment delivered from Jesus that is also a grace. Pastor Joshua talked about this last week, that judgment is often not just this condemnation, but there is a grace packaged within the judgment. 
Jesus' judgment of these chief priests saying they are more like the second son who, uh, with his words, professed commitment, professed belief, professed that he would follow in the ways of the Lord, but then their actions didn't line up. They did not receive or recognize the authority and the power and the invitation from John and now from Jesus. But the grace is that if the tax collectors and the prostitutes could see that and they could repent and believe and respond, is there not still a chance for these chief priests and elders? Could this not be a moment where Jesus is inviting them? He's not simply condemning them. Sure, they might have felt the weightiness of their lack of receptivity and their unbelief, but I can't help but see an invitation where he's saying, they saw it and they responded. And here we are, and you're seeing it. Will you respond? Jesus, the day before, physically flipped over tables in the temple, and now he is flipping the tables on how they understood righteousness at all. One status in God's kingdom has nothing to do with your role in a religious system, the price you paid, or the type of animal you're sacrificing, anything you do to prove or earn your righteousness, one status in God's kingdom has everything to do with receiving Jesus, with repenting and believing. Now, repent is admittedly one of those church words. Um, I have very seldom ever seen the word repent or repentance in a book. I don't often hear it in movies or TV shows. It's a word that is mostly here within the church walls. So I want to take a moment and talk about my understanding of it and give a little bit of definition to it. My understanding of repentance is that it's like a twofold uh, addition problem. So repentance equals turning away plus turning towards. It's a 180 degree turn. So it's not just the recognition that these habits, beliefs, things, practices, or understandings are wrong, but also turning towards healthier habits, better beliefs, real truths that are leading us towards life. Turning from destruction to goodness and wholeness. It's a change of your mind and your heart. And it's inherently tied with our discipleship. Following Jesus as students, if we're a disciple of Jesus, we are students of Jesus, which means we're in a posture of receiving, a posture of learning and growing and changing. Now, I can't help but also admit that when the word repent comes up, there is a part of me that does immediately think of the sidewalk prophets who are selling their fire and brimstone and their promise of hell if you don't repent with their signs on the street corners outside of whatever concert or funeral or wherever else they think uh, their message should be heard. But this call to repentance from Jesus is an invitation for grace. It says that God allows and he accepts and he gives grace for all. It's his call to turn away from what destroys and turn towards what brings life. My favorite part about repentance is it's, it is individual and communal. I think back to, um, and this will be my second story of a time that I, uh, I changed my mind about something. So I, was not, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I didn't grow up Christian. Um, it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s that I learned about Jesus, a, a, a real relationship with Jesus. And I remember I was invited out to coffee with the guy who was the worship director at, our, at the, the church that I was attending. So I was going to church to like have the, the look of a Christian. I had like the moral th- stuff figured out. But most of the days of the week, my life would not have added up. I, I kind of had a Sunday second son, I will, and then a Monday through Saturday, I'm not. Um, so my life didn't really reflect a follower of Jesus. And uh, I played drums, and so I wanted to be on the worship team at this church because I, th- I just thought that was cool. And so the worship leader asked me out for coffee. And as I was driving to meet him for coffee, I just had this pit in my stomach thinking, 
does he know about what my life looks like outside of the Sunday morning church or the Tuesday night young adult group that I was a part of? Has rumor gotten out about my relationship and, and what's going on there or what I'm doing Friday nights and Saturday nights? And so I went almost with this like preparation of defense. I was going to call him a hypocrite and judgmental, and I was going to storm out of that Starbucks. But instead, I sat down, and this guy asked me questions about my life. He just inquired, and he let me come to my own recognition and admittance that my life was not adding up to the same way that I was speaking about it on Sundays and on Tuesdays. And he didn't condemn me. He didn't shame me. He invited me into something better. He listened, and he received it. I, I often summarize this moment by saying that it was a Nathan-David conversation. If you remember the moment where Nathan uh, brought David to a spot of conviction and repentance from his sin with Bathsheba uh, and having her husband murdered on the front lines, Nathan didn't condemn him. He asked him questions. He used uh, a narrative and a metaphor to bring David to that moment of repentance. And I experienced that. It doesn't all, those conversations don't always go that way. I think it's a very difficult conversation, and I regularly have moments where I admire the guy who did this for me, who had that conversation, because it changed my life. It was later on that summer, I turned away from all of that. I ended the relationship that I was in. I moved out of the house that I was living in, back in with my folks, um, still not eating guacamole at this time. Um, but I began to change. So that was the individual, there was a communal part to his bringing my attention, to, helping me to acknowledge my sin, but then there was my individual decision, but then the community came in, and I got to experience that repentance is not a solo journey. Repentance is being in a community of other people who are learning and growing and changing and asking questions and repenting, and then I get to do all of that alongside them, and we get to spur each other on. Repentance does not need to be this shame-filled dark, dark hole or corner that we hide ourselves in. This is something that we have a community around us to walk alongside us. And I believe that there's no better way to practice this than communion and returning to the table. One last quote from one of the commentaries that I read. Um, it says this, Who belongs in God's realm has everything to do with who God is and who is beloved of God. Jesus welcomes the righteous and the lost. Christ welcomes all. So here at LBIC, when we practice the Lord's table and the Lord's supper, the Eucharist, um, and I'll invite the, the servers to come up and prepare for us.